0: You know that we studied the topic of biblical boldness a couple weeks ago, verses 1 to 6. And last week we studied the next six verses on gentle boldness. And today we're going to look at the last third of this chapter, which I've titled Our Joy in One Another. This is not only a continuation of the first two-thirds of the chapter, it is a stunning example of how Christians should view one another. We've seen in these prior verses here that We've seen Paul's example of being sincere, bold, and honest, and innocent in his ministry. We've seen his sacrificial service, his tender and his nurturing care of the believers, like a mother and a father would their very own children. But now Paul crowns his relationship with these believers with the gem of verses 19 and 20, which say, "'For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus, it is coming. For you are our glory and joy. The more I study these words, the more impressed I am at the beauty and the significance of this view of others. As we study through this text today, I think you'll agree with me that seeing one another in the way that Paul just described is not very common it is actually a rarity i suspect there are many of us here today who have never even considered this perspective that just that paul just mentioned in any depth but it is a gem the view of one another in verses in 19 and 20 shapes our relationships It impacts our behaviors. It massively influences our thoughts and the words that we have specifically toward one another in the church. Last week, we saw Paul describe his deep friendship with the believers using words like fond affection, very dear to me, well-pleased to not only give you the gospel, but also my own life, day and night labor and hardship on your behalf not a burden, a sacrificial delight. Why? All so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. When we think about it, Paul just described the church family we all want to be a part of. He just described the small group that we all want to belong to, a place where there is a depth of love and friendship a passion and an effectiveness in growing in our faith and sharing it with others, a place where we can simply find like-minded friends who will join us in this lifelong journey of walking in a manner worthy of God. I am absolutely convinced that if we will faithfully apply chapter 2 to our lives, by the grace of God, we will become the church that he just described. And by God's grace, we are becoming He is doing a good work. But we all know that there is ample room to grow. So let's read verses 13 to 20. Paul says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also suffered the same sufferings, or endured the same sufferings, at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope, our joy, or crown of exaltation, Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. These verses are the amazing word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just stand amazed at your spoken word, your written word, this reminder that the word is you because you speak perfectly and in an unchanging manner. Lord, these words that were so true of Paul and his relationship with the church and the mission and vision for the church, we know that they have not changed today. They are just as true and relevant and life-giving as they are today as they were back then. So Lord, we ask that your Spirit would illumine our eyes. Give us understanding and the grace to honor, to obey, to submit to what we hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's walk back through these verses and um, learn all we can. If you have pen and paper, the back of your salt starter is blank there in the bulletin. This is a good day to take notes. Verse 13 says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Don't you just wish we could sit for hours and bask in the warm rays of these words? Nearly every person here, I believe, has experienced verse 13. Many of you would not hesitate to say, That is me. I heard the word. I believed the Word. I put my faith in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and it changed my life. The Word performed its work in me. That's one of the reasons I love salt groups. It gives us a chance to gather around the coffee table and share not only what we're learning, but what we have experienced and are experiencing in the good work of God's Word. Look at some of the riches of this verse. Paul begins with this phrase, for this reason. That phrase should grab our attention. If we read too quickly, we miss what just happened. Last week, there were two words at the beginning of verse 12 that totally determined the grand purpose for the first 11 verses in this chapter. What were those two words? So that. Verses 1 through 11 had one grand purpose, Verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Everything in me wants to go study and preach that verse again. Such an awesome guiding truth. We were reminded last week that if we miss the so that in verse 12, it's like missing the freeway exit. We miss the whole point. We misunderstand the text. We misinterpret the text. We misapply the text. Do not miss the impact of the so-thats in Scripture. Now, what are the first three words in verse 13? Say them. For this reason. If you're taking notes, you can write this. So-that equals for this reason. If missing the so-that is to miss the freeway exit, then missing the for this reason is to miss the on-ramp. They're both costly. Now, when I was 16 years old, I had the privilege of taking a flight out of Sacramento to Moscow. And I slept through my 4 a.m. alarm, and I woke up at 4.30 when I was supposed to be walking out the door. My bags were not even fully packed yet. I panicked. It was one of the greatest moments of panic in my entire life. Long story short, halfway to Sacramento, from where I lived, there is an exit that puts you on another freeway, out in the middle of nowhere that will take you the rest of the way, the last 30 minutes to the, to the airport. We missed that exit. I can still hear my mom asking my dad, is that the exit? Is that the exit? Was that the exit? That was the exit. <laughs> that conversation is just emblazoned on my mind. I mean, it's pitch black outside. Somehow we missed the signs. The problem is that out in the middle of no man's land, there isn't another exit for miles, several miles. When I finally got to the airport, I ran in and the agent said, keep your bags. You're the last person I'm letting on this plane. I ran. Missing that exit almost cost me my flight to Moscow as a 16-year-old. Missing the so that and the for this reason in Scripture will cost us so much more. Paul says, for this reason, we constantly also thank God. So now we, we study the structure of chapter 2 in the light of the so that's and the for this reason. We realize that Paul just hit a mountain peak here in, chapter, in, in, in the chapter in verse 12. And now he's, in a sense, heading back down the other side. He just hit the climax, the gloriousness of verse 12. It's sandwiched between verses 1 through 11 and now the rest of the chapter, 13 to 20. Both sides of this chapter are bookends to the incredible verse 12. So Paul says we did verses 1 through 11, so you would walk in a manner worthy of God. And everything else in the chapter is because you walk in a manner worthy of God. So that framework, we continue in verse 13, for this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. First, observe the nature of the thanksgiving. Three points. It was significant, it was appropriate, and it was exemplary. There is so much for us to learn here. First, it was significant. This is understood by the word constantly. We constantly thank God, he said. There are things in life that we thank God for, and quite honestly, we never even think of again. But there are other things that we thank God for for the rest of our lives. We never stop giving thanks. Would you agree? Those are usually the most important things in life. The constantly factor here simply elevates not only the depth of gratitude that Paul had toward God, but also the magnitude of what he was about to give thanks for. Paul is saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Secondly, his thanksgiving was appropriate. Had Paul said, thank you for receiving the word of God properly... That could have very well implied that the Thessalonian believers deserved the thanksgiving. There was something they did to earn the gratitude, to qualify them for the appreciation. And while it is indeed appropriate to give thanks to each other, it is more appropriate, more accurate, to give God thanks for the good he is doing in others. Why is that? Because we know that at the heart of every good deed, every noble achievement, every spiritual accomplishment, it is fully empowered by grace. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We know that in and of ourselves there is no good thing But because God has made us new creatures, because He has freed us from slavery to sin, because the Holy Spirit is in us bearing fruit, we now truly have the ability, the God-given, God-empowered ability, we call that grace, to do what is right and pleasing to God. And because it is truly Him who is doing a good work in and through us, it is he alone who truly deserves the thanksgiving. Now, I'm not saying, again, we should, that we should never say thank you to each other. I'm saying that it would be more accurate for us to get into the habit of saying, I thank God for your kindness. I thank God for the wisdom he gave you to help me through that difficult time. I thank God so much for the encouragement you were to me. Here's the truth. The person who regularly speaks, speaks that way regularly thinks that way, believes that way. Paul's thanksgiving here, in just a few words, was most appropriate. And by virtue of its appropriateness, it was exemplary. We thank God for you. We would do well to thank God often for each other in this manner. All those three points to say, what was Paul thankful for? That they received the Word of God for what it is, the Word of God, not Paul or anyone else's opinion. We could spend several Sundays on this verse, but I'm going to let the Sunday school class largely accomplish and make this point. We're being soaked in the magnificent truth that the Bible is the Word of God. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Listen to these words from, the king, from King David. These are his last words recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. And then David went on, to give his final words. And of course, we have 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Without this type of listening ear on the part of the Thessalonian believers, Paul would not have given thanks. Verse 12 would not have happened in them. This, This fond relationship with the believers would not even exist. It all hinged on them listening to the Scriptures as being the Word of God. This was significant. So Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God. I love the way Paul put it. It really is the Word of God. Verse 14, Paul continues to explain the reasoning behind his thanksgiving. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Now, Paul is going to continue this talk about the reality of suffering in the beginning of chapter three, so I'm gonna focus on it when we get there and when we can see it in the fuller context. But for now, we see the continuation of Paul's thanksgiving. He was grateful that they were willing to suffer for Christ. This was significant. This is what it looks like to continue to walk in a manner worthy of God. Suffering for the name of Christ not only honors the holy, loving, just, and merciful God who saved us, it accomplishes much in regards to our testimony and our, even our own fellowship. Paul acknowledges that these young believers in Thessalonica endured the same sufferings at the hands of their own countrymen. Just like the other churches suffered the persecution of the Jews, God's own people, the Israelites, who crucified Jesus, killed the prophets, and then repeatedly ran Paul and his companions out of town everywhere they preached the gospel. Again, more on suffering for Christ and being strengthened and encouraged next week in chapter 3. But for now, verse 15 continues. They are not pleasing to God but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking the gospel to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. That phrase, hostile to all men, is an interesting phrase. The Judaizers, that is, those who rejected Christ as the Messiah and held on to the Old Testament law, not only did they not want other Jews to hear the gospel of the Messiah Jesus, those Judaizers didn't even want the Gentiles The non-Jews, the people they looked down on, they didn't even want them to hear the gospel. The Judaizers were in all-out, full-on opposition to all of Paul's ministry. When you feel like you're being opposed, remember Paul. Hostile to all men. The verse continues. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. They're doing everything possible that they can wrong. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. A few weeks ago, we studied that last phrase in chapter 1, that epic phrase, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Lay that phrase alongside this one, chapter 1, the wrath to come. Chapter 2, but wrath has come. The obvious question for any student of the Word is, is Paul talking about the same wrath when he moved from the future to the present? Is he talking about the same judgment? Let me put a quick plug in for having a good study Bible. My study Bible points out very quickly and succinctly that there are four possible general wraths in scripture. One is Israel's past Babylonian exile, but that wasn't present and it certainly didn't seem to be the utmost of God's wrath. Secondly, it could also refer to the prophecy of the soon coming destruction of Jerusalem. But that hadn't happened yet, and it wasn't A.D. 70 yet, so the readers would not even know what Paul was talking about, and even that doesn't fit the utmost wrath. And third, it could refer to the rapture, Christ's second coming and judgment. But that hasn't happened yet, and even that isn't the utmost. So what other wrath fits this description? The final wrath of God that will send Satan and all God's enemies to hell for eternity. All those whose names are what? Not written in the book of life. They are cast into the lake of fire forever, Revelation twenty fifteen. That would be the utmost. But if that's the utmost, why does Paul refer to it in the present? Some of you are familiar with this answer. I'll, I'll sum it up very quickly. The life of the Christian is lived by what? Faith. Faith, our faith in the perfect, unchanging Word of God. And that faith in the Word, in the person, the sovereign God, is so secure that when God says something of the future, it is as sure as if it had already happened or were happening right now. Future wrath, present reality. The future utmost wrath of God is actually referred to in the present a number of times in Scripture. I think just last week or the week prior, uh, we read John 3, 18. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Same chapter, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It is already there. Present tense. The verdict has already been made. There is no changing it. The certainty of death and judgment is now. Christian friend, this present present truth of a future reality should impact the way we live. It should impact our evangelism. Let's move on to verse 13, uh, 17. This is the simple but life-changing application focus for us this morning. Everything so far was just introduction. Yes, we have been changed by the power of God's Word. And yes, we, yes, we are being still being changed for the better. And yes, the opposition is out there and very real, and we feel the effects of it. Yes, there is a future judgment coming upon God's enemies, but what do we as believers have to look forward to? What encourages us to be faithful and to be growing in our walking worthy of the God who saved us? Verses 17 to 20, but we, brethren... Having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul turned to these young believers these people he loved so much. And he said, just seeing you standing in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus when the rapture happens, just seeing you standing there in the clouds, forgiven, redeemed, saved eternally, you will be my glory and joy in that moment. That is the moment I live for, for you, Consider the exact words that Paul used. You are our hope and joy and crown of exaltation. We have to understand the word exaltation here to appreciate this statement because that's the focus of the hope, joy, and crown. Exaltation with a U, which is not the same as exaltation with an A. Exalt with an A means to lift up. It simply means to elevate, to honor, to promote. We exalt God in His holiness Psalm 99 verse 5 captures this thought incredibly well. Exa- exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. He is holy. But that's not the word that Paul was using here. He uses the word exaltation with a U. This is the Greek word kaukasis, which actually at its, at, its, at its root refers to boasting in a good way. It's the cause for rejoicing. It's the cause for celebration. It is the cause for glory. Some of your Bibles even use the word rejoicing here. We also have to notice the word crown. Unlike a kingly crown, Paul's usage of this word very likely refers to the reward an athlete would receive if he won in the Olympic or Isthmian Games. You know what I'm talking about. We're talking about the winner's wreath. And just having that placed on the head of the winner by the emperor or whoever. Paul is saying, my hope of rejoicing, my present joy of future rejoicing, my crown or or my winner's wreath of rejoicing and glory is you. It's you seeing you standing in the clouds when Jesus returns. That will be the prize of my exaltation. He even goes so far as to say, you are my glory and joy. There is a tremendous lesson here for us. Now, when we hear the words of hope, joy, exaltation, and glory, who do we usually and rightly ascribe them to? Jesus Christ. And yet Paul also ascribes them to the believers, his new converts. Think about it, the church family that he recently birthed. These were his own children in the faith. He says, you are our hope, joy, and crown of rejoicing. You are our glory and joy. This is where it's very important to make biblical distinctions carefully, particularly where there can be multiple meanings or applications. Distinctions are often made by simply simply identifying what was said and what was not said, and then taking your conclusions and comparing them against the rest of Scripture. So let's look at what was not said. Paul did not say, you are our only hope, joy, crown, or glory. He did not say you are our greatest hope, joy, crown, or glory. He didn't say you are the hope of my salvation or the joy of my salvation, etc. Jesus Christ holds those roles alone. He also did not say you are my final hope, joy, glory or crown no he simply said you are in that moment we not only learn from what Paul did not say but from what he did say he distinctly defined what he was talking about and this is important for us to understand if we're going to uh, properly apply this perspective ourselves he distinctly defined what he said when he used the phrase in the presence of our Lord Jesus it is coming it's like Paul is saying the assurance of your salvation The Father's safekeeping of your soul gives me the hope of rejoicing when the rapture happens. Your secure salvation is the joy of that moment. Your your secure salvation is the reward I will feel fall upon my head in that sublime event. You will be a glorious sight to my eyes Because all the radiance of Jesus Christ's holiness will shine from you. All the beauty of Christ's righteousness will shine from your resurrected body. And I will see this with my very own eyes. You have no idea how much joy you will bring and are bringing to my soul in that magnificent moment. When I look at you now, I confidently see you standing in the presence of Jesus. Church family, I have one question for us today. Is that the way you view the person sitting next to you this morning? That person sitting in front of you, is that the perspective you have of them? Those families in your salt group, do we think of the rapture when we look at them? When we look at our children, do we see the potential for them to be standing in the clouds in the presence of Jesus in that moment. When I preach, is this the visualization of true success that I have for our church family? It's very important that we define success and achievement, mission, etc., properly. We have ridiculous, self centered shallow, fragile definitions of success being blasted in our face from every possible source day in and day out. I have been reminded these past couple weeks of one very biblical, accurate view of success for our church family. They're standing in the clouds when Jesus returns. It's as simple as that. If everyone here is standing there, I can almost feel the wreath already. Can you feel it for one another? Paul says, my fellow believers, seeing you in Christ in that moment, that is my glory and joy. Notice how you, again how he uses the present tense. You are our glory and joy. Not you will be, but you are. That is a present joy of a future reality. That's faith. Don't you love that? And let us not limit the truths and application of this verse to the four walls of this building. We need to see our community this way. When we go to work, we need to see the potential, the opportunity for that unsaved co-worker to be standing in the clouds when Jesus returns. We need to picture the joy of them being one of our beloved, treasured children in the faith. Young people, children, do you see your unsaved classmates at school this way? Do you see them as being a possible crown of rejoicing on your head when Christ returns? You need to pray and to witness and hopes that they will be standing there when their time comes. We all need to faithfully remind ourselves that these people are worth running the marathon for. The salvation of our neighbor is worth fighting decades for. It's worth praying for year after year after year. Our missionaries are worth supporting for the glory of that moment when like a thief in the night, we suddenly find ourselves standing in the sky having been rescued from the wrath to come. Christian friend, who will be your crown of rejoicing in that day? Who will come running to you and me in eternal gratitude for something as simple as sharing the life-saving words of the gospel with them? My heart breaks for those who will have no one running up to them with tears of joy. We need to think deep and hard and honest on that future moment. Yes, we all contribute to the work of the Lord through the church organization, through missionaries, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And, and there will be indirect fruit, and that is absolutely noble and worthwhile. That's a big part of how God works, but let me also urge you and myself to go one step further. We need to be the messenger, not just the sending of the messengers. This is one of the true tests of our personal faith. Our faith must see this rapture moment as though it has already happened and is already happening. It is that real. It is that imminent, whether we see it or not. Friends, if we have no sense of this positive empowering, joyous view of others, no regular awareness of this future reality, then no wonder we lack the passion, the depth of love, the depth of sacrifice, the depth of relationship that Paul had for these believers who, remember, were not too long before unbelievers. The love for the believer starts with a love for the unbeliever. The two are absolutely inseparable. But it's not too late for us to grab hold or to grab tighter of this perspective that changed the apostle Paul's ministry. Paul's passion for Christ, his unlimited commitment for delivering the message without deceit or error, his day and night labor and love for believers His challenge for them to walk worthy of God was unquestionably impacted and driven and empowered by this rapture-present view of them. What truths for us to live by today. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at the Word of God to think that You were so loving and merciful and kind as to send Your Son And then someone else took the baton and they carried the word and eventually it reached us. And we have been given the words of eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Help us not to forget that others need these words as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.